Welcome, everybody. Good to see you uh, today. We're beginning uh, the fourth chapter uh, of the Gospel according to Mark. Um, if you remember, and maybe you don't, but you remember when we ended class last week, I told you we were going to begin chapter four, which is largely, or at least most of it, uh, our series of parables. The, the chapter is uh, similar to Matthew chapter 13, which I think we briefly mentioned. And what I thought we would do is try to answer three questions as we begin. Number one, what is a parable? Number two, why did Jesus teach in parables? And then number three is how do we interpret parables? So let's, uh, let's begin and let's kind of address those questions in that order. So as you'll see right away, um, the word parable is used in verse 2 of Mark chapter 4. So for, the first question is, what is a parable? Uh, a parable is a story. Now, this is always difficult whenever you're studying something like this, whether you're studying the Bible or whether you're studying literature outside the Bible. But since we're studying the Bible, it's even more important. What is a parable? A parable is a story. And it is a story normally from everyday life. Those in the first century when Jesus told these parables would have understood exactly what he was saying. They would have, they probably in some cases, Jesus may even have pointed to individuals who are acting out what he's saying. The, the parable, the story, is to teach a truth. And so that's, there's the challenge. That is the major challenge of studying parables. We can understand the story. Rarely is that difficult. The problem is, what is the point of the story? And that's that third question, and I'll get to that in just a minute. The second question that I wanted to ask and try to answer is, why did Jesus teach in parables? And that, uh, I want to go to Matthew 13. So if you have your Bible or your phone or wherever you access that, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 13, and I want to look at verse 10 and following, because here is where, it is, this is not in Mark, here in Matthew is where we get the answer uh, why, why did he teach in parables? Why did he teach stories from everyday life with a primary point of application? So if you have that open, I gave you a minute or two to, to find that. I want to I read in verse 10 and following, and I will make a series of comments about the words of the Lord here. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from those who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And then the Lord quotes from Isaiah, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart. And turn, and I will heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see 
what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. Now, again, I know that's a little bit difficult, uh, perhaps even perplexing to you as I read this, but if you, if you follow the words of Jesus, he's making two points. I'm going to try to distill it down into two phrases. For those who are believers, for those, this would be the time of Jesus, it would be the time for you and me 2,000 years later. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you and is helping you to understand and apply truth. So Jesus taught in parables to reveal truth, to clarify, reveal, to sharpen, to, to explain truth. Truth what? He said it. Did you catch that? The kingdom of heaven. Parables are about kingdom truth. Parables are revealing the truth about God's kingdom. Jesus comes to earth in his incarnation and invades the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. He is the light of the world, and he is now revealing truth. And those who have ears, spiritually sensitive ears, will understand and apply the truths in the parable. But there's a second reason why he taught in parables, to hide truth to hide truth from those who do not believe, for those whose hearts are hardened, those whose ears are hardened. Remember, has Jesus walked through that with us? And so, now this is maybe hard for you, but listen to this sentence and think about it. In hiding truth through the teaching of parables to those whose hearts are hardened is an act of God's grace. So remember what Jesus said? He said, it a little, uh, he said it earlier in that section I just read. To, to, to those who have been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. Heaven abundant, but from none who not, has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so if, if you are accountable for truth that's been revealed by the Lord, if you have more light, more revelation from God, you're more accountable. But if your heart is hard and your spiritual ears can't hear, then you will not understand the parable. Therefore, you're not accountable for that. And so that is an act of God's grace, because God judges based on the amount of light received, the amount of truth received, the amount of truth revealed and understood. And so why does Jesus teach in parables? For those who have believed, it reveals truth. For those who have rejected Jesus, it hides truth. And so, and I, I know that's theologically deep. It, it's theologically stretching. There's some tension there theologically. And I understand that. But that is the point the Lord Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 13. As he responds to the questions of his disciples, Lord, why are you teaching them in parables? And the response that Jesus gave is, is what I wanted to use to introduce, why does he teach in parables? Our second question. So let me stop there for a minute. Are you with me? You want to clar me yes. clarify anything? Do you want to ask additional questions? Okay. It's well explained in, uh, in that chapter you sent us to, uh, in chapter 13. Yes. 
of Matthew, um, but not as thorough as you just explained. Thank you. Okay, good. Well, that's very encouraging and affirming. I appreciate you saying that, Woody. All right. Reveal truth, hide truth. Now, the third question I'm going to answer as we go through the parables uh, that are <clears throat> explained in that Mark chapter 4. So if you're in your New Testament, turn back now to Mark chapter 4, and we'll get started. The third question is, what's the main point? How do you interpret a parable? And here, this is a bit difficult, because the parable that Jesus teaches usually has lots of parts to it, sometimes several different people to it, several different actions to it, but you have, what is the main point he's making? And so that's why there is sometimes, not usually a major disagreement, but there's sometimes some disagreement among people who've studied and have written the expositors, in other words, of the New Testament material. So with that kind of overview, let's get into the first parable, and this is a parable that is very well known, very familiar. It's a major part of Matthew uh, chapter 13. It's a major part of Mark chapter 14, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 4. It's sometimes called the parable of the sower. I actually would prefer to call it the parable of the soils, because the, to me, and here's, here's how you go about interpreting a parable, the, the parable is not about the farmer sowing his seed. The parable is about the four different types of soil that receive the seed. And so just as a thought, as we begin that, uh, that's, that's kind of what I think is the best for us to really interpret this correctly. All right, now what I want to do, this is kind of a long section, I'd like to read the substance of the parable in verses 1 through 9. <coughs> Excuse me. And he began to teach beside the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee, up in the north. You, we've looked at the map many times, you know what I'm talking about. And a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat, sat on it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Now, you just kind of have to get a, a, a picture in your mind, a word picture. Jesus is in a boat along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd is along the shore. So Jesus is teaching toward the crowd. He's on a boat on the Sea of Galilee right along the shore on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and a crowd, a, a fairly substantial crowd, is there. And he was teaching them, verse 2, many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no root. It withered away. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Verse 8, and other seeds fell into good soil, produced grain, growing up, increasing, yielding 34-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And he said to them, he who has ears, let him hear. So there again, what I was commenting on, we were looking briefly at Matthew 13. 
the spiritually sensitive ear, the person who is sensitive to the things of God, who's responding in faith to the things of God, will hear it and will understand it. Okay, now, Jesus will interpret this in verse 13. So let me go down to verse 13, and I'll come back and look at 10, 11, and 12 in a minute. But let's look at verse 13. Now, I want you, this is really hard for you and me here in Omaha, Nebraska, because we're, we're very familiar with agriculture. We're very familiar with how systematic agriculture is, how incredibly diligent farmers are in planting. And I, when I was uh, president of a school, I traveled a lot and I spent a lot of time with farmers. I, I was on some of their, their combines, I was on some of their tractors, and I was amazed at how much is computerized. And I mean, just incredible technology today. None of that existed in the first century. And so what does a farmer do in Palestine? What was a farmer, what, it, what did it look like for a farmer in the spring as he's getting ready to plant his crops? He would have a bag of seed around his waist. And literally, literally, he would take the seed and just throw the seed. Just throw it. It wasn't systematic. It certainly wasn't anything computerized like you and I think of agriculture today, at least some parts of agriculture that I'm familiar with anyway. And so it sounds almost crazy, but for thousands of years, that's how farming occurred. And so it's going to depend where the seed lands. The focus of Jesus' parable, parable of the soils, is the soil. And there are four types of soil. And so that sets us up for the Lord as he interprets this for us. That's the value of the parable of the soils, because Jesus interprets it for us. And I'm in verse 13 now. He said to them, do you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower shows the word. So now we're getting, okay. So what the sower, the farmer, is sowing is the word of God. Okay, now that's a story. Now Jesus has interpreted. So the seed is the word of God. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. And there, the, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The one who, when they hear the word, immediately receives it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And when tribulation or persecution rises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Third, verse 18, and others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. But those who are sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, you could translate that, receive it, and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And so the Lord Jesus, in interpreting this for us, it's amazingly, it's amazingly helpful. So the seed is the word, and the, the, the reception of the word depending, is dependent upon the soil, dependent upon the person who receives it. 
because the soil really represents the person. And you have four types of responses to the word of God being proclaimed. But did you see in the first one, the ones that are sown along the path, where the word is sown along the path, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. And so God's word is veiled by satanic opposition and by human unbelief. And so in the first type of soil, the first type of person who hears the word is immediately influenced by Satan, the rebellion and opposition of Satan, their unbelief, and it's totally rejected. The second one, the rocky ground, this one hears, it, 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 it's received, the person understands it, but as soon as difficulties come, they throw away the Word of God. Tribulation, persecution, they want nothing to do with it. When Jesus uses the phrase in the end of verse 17, they fall away. That doesn't mean they lose their salvation. That's not that word. That's not the meaning of that term. It just, all that means is it just illustrates they did not, one, understand the word. Number two, they did not embrace and welcome the word. Number three, they really didn't embrace the word as truth. So as soon as opposition comes, they discard it. They'll fall away. They just discard it. It's meaningless. Now, the Jim, third one, Jim, some, among some of us, Jim, I think have been there. Yes. We weren't ready for the word. Yes. Yes. That's right. I have. I was. That's right. And I didn't want to hear it. That's right. And I would stop people if they were going to tell me about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I mean, you're right. Every, every human being should be able to identify with one of these four aspects of the parable. And you are right. One of the amazing things about God's grace is he often moves people along to where they get to stage four, if you will, that the fourth type of soil. The third one is a little, not difficult, but you have to understand again the point. Okay, the, this, the word is sown among, the word is received among other things. There are other aspects of a person's life, other priorities in a person's life. And hearing the Word of God is just one of those. And so Jesus uses the illustration of a thorn. Now, all of you know, I mean, we're in summertime, and so you know that when you, you've planted things, whether you're planting your corn or your tomatoes or whatever, or just flowers, you know, we're getting to the point where thorns and thistles and all kinds of things are coming up in the garden. we got to take care of those, or you're not going to get the crop you want. And so what are the what are the examples or illustrations of the thorns that are other priorities in a person's life? Jesus illustrates it in verse 9, cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, the desire for material things. They choke the Word. The, the Word of God doesn't take hold in a person's life because there are many other competing priorities. And the Word of God is not really taken seriously because there are other competing things, and over time, the person just says, you know, this really isn't important. So the fruit of God, faith, isn't there. And so Jesus then comes to the fourth one. This is the person who hears the Word of God, accepts it, 
I, I, when I was reading this, I said you could translate it received it. You could also translate it welcomes it. You could also translate embraces it. So this is a person who is responding in faith to the Word of God. And they're not just superficially, in a shallow way, okay, I understand it. No, it's deeper than that. Not just understanding what the Word says, but embracing it, welcoming it, receiving it. Then it bears its fruit. And that's the point Jesus makes. And so when you start to understand the parable of the soils, you begin, as Woody did a few moments ago, I know where I am now, but I also know in earlier years in my life, I might have been soil number one or soil number two or even soil number three. I was very, very much, very much soil number three before I came to know Christ in 1972. I mean, there were so many other things. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a conservative fundamentalist church, but I didn't want anything to do with it. But it's just a, it's a, it's an amazing parable because once you understand what Jesus is really saying, you say, oh boy, he's right. The reception of the word of God is, is up to the situation of the person who hears it. Where are they in their lives? Where are they in terms of receiving and welcoming and embracing the Word of God? All of you know there are many, many competing priorities, as well as things like the hardness of heart, as well as in the first type of soil, Satan and his opposition. And so it's, it's an important parable. It's, it's used in three of the four Gospels to illustrate how are people going to respond to the kingdom message of Jesus. How today do people respond to the kingdom of, uh, message of Jesus? All right, now let me stop there. I want to go back for just a moment to verse 10 and following, and, and then we'll go to the next uh, series of parables. Are there any questions or comments about the parable of the soils, as I, as I call it? Wow, I either did a good job or you guys are so lost you can't even understand what I'm saying. <laughs> All right? Go back with me to verse 10. It's somewhat similar to Matthew 13, but, but not as, not as uh, complete and full in, in terms of why uh, Jesus teaches in parables. And when he was alone, in verse 10 of Mark 4, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about parables, and he said, so you've been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything's in parables. So that they indeed may see but not perceive, hear but not understand, that they should turn and be forgiven, lest they turn and be forgiven. The Lord is quoting there from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and which he had quoted from in Matthew 13 as well. And he, this is much shorter very typical in Mark's way of organizing the material, very short, pithy, bang, 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 it's over. But it's saying the same thing. Jesus teaches in parables to reveal truth. Jesus teaches in parable to hide truth. Because Jesus knows the heart of those, I should put it this way, Jesus knows the heart of some of those whom he's teaching. Their heart is hard. 
so that they see but don't perceive, hear but don't understand, lest they turn. And that, that's their heart. That's their will. And that's, that's why the persistent, continual, relentless grace of God pursues the hard-hearted person to break that hard heart down so that they will receive the truth of the gospel. Okay, with, with that said, again, very similar to what's in, in Matthew, but just not, not as complete, not as thorough, let's look at the second parable in the gospel of Mark chapter 4 that, that Jesus teaches. Verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Now, before we look at verse 22, what's he talking about? Now, when you, when you read the word lamp, you're thinking of like, if you're in your home there, you probably have a table and you have a big lamp on that, or you may have a lamp that has a long stand and it's in the corner next to a Davenport or something like that. That's not what he's talking about. This is the first century. There's not electricity. He's talking about a little circular, a little circular piece of pottery about the size of your hand, and it has a little hole in the middle, and in the middle of that hole is a wick. And in that wick, excuse me, in that in that container, which they called a lamp, would be put olive oil, and you would burn that. That was your only for almost all people unless they were very, very wealthy, they had much larger lamps, but almost everyone in the first century, that's how you would, that's how you have light in your home. You would usually have several of these. Again, it's called an olive, olive oil lamp. The source of, 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 the, of the energy is olive oil, which would be burned with a wick. And again, it's about the size of your hand. And so Jesus says, I mean, it's almost a ludicrous question, but it, it, it's a rhetorical question highlighting the point. Okay, you bring a lamp into your house. Think of what I just described. Do you put it under a basket? Or do you put it under your bed? I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Well, of course not. You put it on a stand. And they literally had stands. We found many of them in archaeological digs. So it's high. It would the, the maximize, to maximize the illumination of the room. Okay. Now, Jesus then says, okay, everybody would hear that rhetorical word. Oh, of course. <laughs> you put it on a stand. You want to maximize the amount of light it can give in a room. So here's what Jesus says. Now, listen. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. What in the world is he talking about? My word is like a lamp. It's to make things manifest. It's to make things clear. I'm not hiding truth. I'm revealing truth. I'm, I'm not hiding something. I'm trying to make it clear. I'm not making things darker. I'm making things lighter. So in a sense, this parallels the parable of the soils, because, because the seed represents the Word of God, and Jesus is saying, nothing is hidden, nothing is secret, it comes to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so Jesus, again, I'll repeat what I said, Jesus, as the Messiah, is revealing truth. He's making truth manifest. He's not hiding truth. He's not keeping it secret. He's revealing it. But those who hear, those who have spiritual ears to hear, listen, hear, internalize, pay attention. Because the more you have, the more you will be given. What does he mean? The more truth you receive and the more truth you welcome, the more truth you embrace, the more you will receive. That is a major principle throughout God's Word. The more light, light meaning a metaphor for revelation, for truth sourced in God, the more you will receive. The less you understand, the less you could care less about it, you will receive no more revelation. And so Jesus is saying again what if you do not respond to the truth that I, the Messiah, am revealing, you will get no more truth. As a matter of fact, you will lose it all. And of course, he's referring ultimately to the final judgment. He doesn't explain it here. This is no detail here. All he's saying is, it matters how you respond to my words. Then, in the third parable that Jesus teaches, verse 26 through 29, we have a unique parable. This is the only parable that's unique to Mark. This parable, which we're going to study in a minute, is not in Matthew, it's not in Luke, it's not in John. This is unique to Mark. Let me read it. It's very short. And he said, he would be Jesus, of course, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts, it grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, the full grain. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest time has come. All right, now, you read that, or you read it with me, or you follow along as I read it, and you said, what's, what's the point of this? I mean, it's a simple story of a farmer. It's a parable of a farmer. But I want you to, again, remember a parable is a story to teach a truth. It's a parable it's a story to teach a primary truth. So far, Jesus has been explaining the parable of the soils, the, 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 the lamp, and what it does is it manifests truth. It's not hiding. It's not secret. It's revealing truth. And so Jesus is saying, and the key is the kingdom of God phrase. The key to this parable is the kingdom of God phrase. 
the kingdom of God is as if. Now that's that's grammatical, but Jesus is setting up an analogy. You know what an analogy is? It's like a comparison. And Jesus is saying, now listen very carefully to this, the growth and development of the kingdom of God is like a farmer and his agricultural pursuit. There are three phases. Phase one is you scatter the seed. Phase two, the seed sprouts. Phase three is the harvest. All right, now remember, I said the key to this parable is the phrase, the kingdom of God. He's not talking about a farmer. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And to drive home the point he's making about the kingdom of God, he says, it's an analogy. It's a comparison. It starts small and yields a phenomenal harvest. Okay, phase one. Let's, let's be very specific. Phase one, because Jesus is teaching this, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. The kingdom has invaded Satan's realm. It's plundering Satan's realm. And so phase one is the word of God is scattered throughout the word, throughout the world. That's what a farmer does. And day after day, he rises in the morning, goes to sleep at night. He waits day and night until he starts to see the seeds sprouting. People are responding to the word. People are responding, and they're beginning to grow. Go back to the parable of the sowers. They hear it. They welcome it. They embrace it. Fruit is beginning to be born. And phase three is the harvest. And so if the kingdom of God is like a farmer, it's analogical to a farmer, it's got slow, steady, yet perceptible growth. When will the harvest of the kingdom come? When Jesus comes back? And so if, and I believe this is the only way to truly understand it, if Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is analogically like compared to a farmer going through these phases, phase one and phase two is the first advent of Jesus. Phase three is the second advent of Jesus. Phase one is, and phase two, are what Jesus Christ established in his three years of public ministry, and what his disciples, as soon as he went back to the Father, which recorded for us in the book of Acts, they're the ones who spread it, starting to see the fruit sprout, starting to see it grow. But when will the final harvest come? Not till Jesus comes back. And so you and I, today, in 2021, you and I are still a part of phase one and phase two of the kingdom. Phase three of the kingdom is only going to be finalized and accomplished when the Lord Jesus comes back. Again, this parable is unique to Mark, but the key to it is the phrase, the kingdom of God. He's not really talking about a farmer. He's using the comparison of a farmer to illustrate the kingdom of God is going to grow. It's going to be slow, 
it's but perceptible, but the harvest is not going to come until the end. And that is only, only possible with the return of Jesus. And so in that sense, it's a very marvelous par parable. It's actually one of my favorite parables, and it's only in Mark, because it's so short, it's so clear, and so pointed. Oh, I know what Jesus is saying, and I hope you are too. You with me on that? On the fourth parable, third parable? Okay, any questions? Wow. I'm either doing a marvelous job of teaching today, or you guys are so lost you can't even phrase a question. So I'm going to assume that you're with me. All right. Number four, in terms of the parables in Mark chapter four, is verse 30, and it's what correctly is the parable of the mustard seed. Now, this, this parallels, and I think you can understand that now, this parallels what Jesus has been teaching. Now, verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable should we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed. Now, please note the word like. That means this is a simile. Now, simile, S-I-M-I-L-E, a simile is a figure of speech. You're, again, making an analogy. You're making a comparison. So Jesus is saying two questions. What can, what can compare the kingdom? What parable shall we use? I'm going to use a mustard seed. It's like a grain of mustard seed which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. It's the smallest seed in the ancient Near Eastern world. And when, yet when it is sown, it grows up and, and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. It grows 10 to 12 feet tall in two weeks. That's how fast a mustard plant almost like a mustard tree, really, grows in Palestine. The seed is the smallest seed in the eastern Mediterranean world. You put it in the ground, you water it. In two weeks, it could be as high as 12 feet. So what's the point? The birds, the birds of the air can make nests in the shade, which is actually, actually what happened. With many such parables, he spoke a word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So, again, I, I don't think this is difficult. What's the parable of the mustard seed? Similar to the parable number three, which I just explained earlier, the only one that appears in the Gospel of Mark alone, the mustard seed is an illustration an, an analogy, a comparison of the growth of the kingdom. Starts small, grows phenomenally, such that the birds of the air make nests in the shade. It becomes a place of security. It becomes a place of comfort. It becomes a place that, that, that you could experience the blessings, the blessings of God. Most expositors, and I certainly agree with this, most expositors think Jesus is alluding to Ezekiel chapter 17. 
with the birds of the air make their nests in its shade. The kingdom of God not only starts small and grows to phenomenal heights, but it also grows to phenomenal heights as a place of security, a place of safety, a place of blessing. In our backyard, you walk out the back uh, door, we have a sliding door, and you go down a couple steps, we, we have a little patio, and we planted a tree at the end of that patio so that it shades the whole tree. And I have a fence, a wood fence back there. It's really safe, it's quiet, it's secure. You know what, you know what happens every summer? We have one or two birds build nests in that tree. And whenever I read this parable, that's what I think of, because that is what the kingdom is like. It's like a, it's like a mustard seed. It's like a tree that grows, and it becomes a place of safety, a place of security, a place of blessing. That's what Jesus is saying. And so in these four parables recorded for us in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, you see Four separate but very related teachings about the kingdom of God. And you get, to, you get to say, ah, you know what Jesus is saying in those parables is really true. It started small, perceptible, but small. In a little village in the Eastern Mediterranean world of Bethlehem. Nobody knew anything about Bethlehem. It was a backwater town. And then the Messiah was born there. He grew up in another backwater town, Nazareth. Okay, by A.D. 33, he goes to the cross and dies. Within 30 years, that kingdom message, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, is all over the Mediterranean world. You go out 300 years later, the Caesar, Constantine, legitimizes Christianity, and by the end of that century, under Theodosius, it is now the official religion of the Roman Empire. And I mean, I could just go on and on through history. It starts small, in, almost infinitesimally small. Who would have ever thought Bethlehem and Nazareth would be the beginning of the breakthrough of the kingdom of God on this rebellious planet? But that's exactly what happened, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. And it grew. Now throughout the world, 1.7 billion people named the name of Jesus as their Savior and Lord. The kingdom is growing. And it is a place of safety, of security, and of divine blessing. That's the kingdom. Got it? Okay? Um, good. Well, I hope, I want to move into verse 35 now of Mark 4, but I hope this makes sense to you guys. I mean, the, the parables of Jesus, I have always found it easy to teach them, but I've found so many people get confused when they read the parables. I hope I at least gave you a little bit of a way to study and analyze and think about the parables. I hope that's been helpful, because if you study Matthew 13 or even parts of Luke, there are more parables than just what's in Mark. All right, I'm going to move on now, and uh, if you're following in your outline, chapter 4, verse 35, we begin to see what I like to call, and that's how I've outlined it, 
a series of withdrawals. Opposition to Jesus is growing, and Jesus is beginning now to withdraw. And he does a number of strategic things. Geographically, he's moving to different places. He is relating to certain groups of individual people differently. And you see his strategy, and maybe a better word is his tactics are changing as he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Here we see one of those. So it begins in verse 35, and it will go through verse, excuse me, go through chapter 6. Let's get the setting. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, now Mark is being very specific here, so I am assuming that he wants us to understand as he completed teaching these parables, he said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. The other side of what? Of the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, meaning filling with water. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Now, before we look at verse 40, let me just make a comment or two about this narrative. Jesus, uh, it, this is almost an unimaginable illustration of the power, of the faith, of the trust of the Lord Jesus in his heavenly Father, but also of the God-man nature of Jesus. Remember, He's undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see that combination of the, of the two aspects of Jesus, his full humanity, but his full deity, working together, not with confusion, but with perfect symmetry as the God-man Jesus Christ. All right, they're on the Sea of Galilee. They're heading from the one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side. It is very typical. I've been there many times in my life. Only one time was I there when we were on the Sea of Galilee and a storm came up. Remember, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And, and all around it are mountains. It's, it's like a suction. And those, those storms come in across the Mediterranean Sea, they come to this, and they're just like sucked down, drawn down. And it can be a gorgeous, beautiful, sun-filled afternoon, and all of a sudden, within 10 minutes, one of those storms hits. And that is apparently the situation here. And so Jesus, he's exhausted. Here's his humanity. So exhausted, he takes one of the cushions that were placed under the arm of the sailors that they would row. That's what that cushion is. 
when it says there in verse, he took one of the cushions that were placed under the arms of the sailors when they would row. He put one of those and put his head on it and fell asleep. And so now the storm is raging. And that, that word is, it, this is not just a little, this is a little bit like what happened around my house on Saturday night, or very early Saturday morning. 96 mile an hour winds it ripped everything around our neighborhood, maybe yours too. This is a torrential storm, lots of wind. What does Jesus say? He awoke. The disciples, don't you care we're perishing? Remember, this Peter, James, and John, he said, these are professional fishermen. And when they get in a storm like this, they're terrified. Verse 39 is an astonishing verse. Here you see the God-man. He's asleep. He's tired. He's exhausted. But what does he do? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea. You could translate that word rebuke, ordered the wind. Here is the creator telling his creation what to do. And he says to the sea, peace, be still. You could literally translate peace, be muzzled. That's really the Greek term there, peace. Peace, shalom, be muzzled. It's a technical term, a technical term of dispossession. Again, men, this is an amazing situation. Here you see the true undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person, Jesus. He's tired, he's exhausted, he's asleep. His head is on a pillow that was used to cushion the arms of the rowers of the boats and immediately wakes up and orders his creation to obey. Shalom, peace, be muzzled. He's ordering the creator, is ordering his creation. Does his creation obey? What does the rest of verse 39 say? The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Man, isn't that amazing? The Sea of Galilee goes from a raging torrential, <coughs> excuse me, raging torrential windstorm to a calm, beautiful, still, like you see on a summer afternoon in a lake up in Minnesota or something. And it's an amazing contrast. The Creator has ordered His creation to obey. And then he, here is His point. Look at verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That sounds to me a little bit unfair. That sounds to me as if Jesus is rebuking them in an unjust manner. But is he? Let me ask you a question. What would you say was the primary objective that Jesus Christ had with his disciples? What did he want to teach them? Because remember, he knew what they had struggled accepting. He knew that within a couple of years, he was going to go to the cross and was going to go back to the Father. 
they didn't quite get all that. They'll eventually get it. You know what happens in the book of Acts. But he knows he's going back to the Father. So what, what must these men be able to do? They must be able to trust him. If they're going to change the world, which the book of Acts says they did, if they're going to change the world, they got to trust him. And so that's what Jesus is saying. You approached me out of fear. You did not approach me out of faith. And there's a big difference. They came to him, woke him up out of fear. It isn't wrong. It's not an ethical or moral uh, decision on their part that Jesus is rebuking. No, it was legitimate. Terrible storm, waking him up. Lord, can you do anything about this? But they approached it out of fear, not out of faith. You and I know, and this is something even during this storm, and we rode out power for four days. This was something, it was, it was part for, particularly for Peggy, this was really a struggle to not allow fear to overcome faith. Did this storm catch the Lord off guard? Did sneak up on his blind side? Of course not. So for the Christian, for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, it's either faith or it's fear. To ask for help, to cry out to Jesus, to, to ask him to, to do what only he can do. Jesus is saying, when you come to me, I want you to come to me in faith, not in fear. That they came to him and asked him to still the storm. Legitimate, he's not rebuking for that. But they came to him out of fear. He said, why not faith? They've seen him do phenomenal miracles. They've seen him feed 5,000. They've seen him do all of these incredible messianic miracles. And Jesus is saying, come to me in faith. And then we see the response in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Remember what I've said in our study of the Gospel of Mark, the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. Here's another illustration of this. They just witnessed an incredible messianic miracle. They just witnessed something that few human beings have been able to see with objective tactile evidence staring them in the eyes. The creator just ordered his creation to obey him. And so there, and that word fear, it's phobos, it, it, we get a word phobia from that, but that great fear, it's mega fear. So these guys are responding, not so much with awe, A-W-E, and reverence, as these guys are terrified. And here is just, you think, whoa, why are they responding that way? The progressive understanding by the disciples as to who Jesus is. They are processing what they're seeing. They're processing what they're hearing. They're processing what they're observing. Who is this? We believe he's the Messiah, but he's more than just a man. And remember, as we've established earlier in our study of Mark, Peter was the primary source Mark used when writing his gospel. 
And so undeniably, Mark is, is reflecting here, writing down and summarizing what Peter told him. Mark, you should have been there. When we saw Jesus order that storm to be calm, we were terrified. We're saying, who is this? We know he's our Messiah. We're following him. We've given up everything to follow him. But he's more than just a man. Who is he? And they're processing all this. This is all going through their mind, all going through their heart. It's becoming a part of their will. Who are we following here? Who is this person? He's more than just a man. And so that is becoming the central question that by the time Jesus raises from the dead, they will have started to put it together. He's the God-man. He's undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. And that's what John will write in his gospel. That's what Matthew will detail in the first 10 chapters of his gospel. That's what Luke will detail in the first 13 chapters of his gospel. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. Because in the book of Acts, you see these guys now going out and doing exactly what Jesus did and teaching exactly what Jesus taught. And they're going to transform the Mediterranean world. Now there's a progressive understanding. Who is he? And they're starting to put it all together. So it's, it's, it's magnificent how Mark is doing this as he just step by step helps us to see and understand these guys are starting progressively to understand who Jesus is. All right, you got it? Yes. Everybody with me? Yes. All right. Thank you, Woody, that you're with me. I'm just assume everybody else is because you're all on mute. Well, listen. Hey, yeah, okay. It's time for me to go. I've got to get to an, another meeting here, another one of my studies. So I'm going to pray and let you go. And Lord willing, unless a storm comes and I'm knocked out again, I don't have internet access. I'll see you next Wednesday. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for our study. Thank you for helping us as we looked at the, the parables, tried to study them and understand them, what, what that really means that Jesus taught in parables why he taught in parables, and what the point. In this case with Mark, the point is really understanding what the kingdom is in response to the kingdom. It's, it's quite wonderful. Thank you, too, for this amazing miracle on the Sea of Galilee. It's one of my favorite miracles because you see perfectly, perfectly, Jesus the God-man. Fully human, he's tired, he's exhausted, and then he wakes up and orders his creation to obey him. That's amazing. That's our Jesus. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. His power, his, his, his glory, his honor, but his humility in coming to earth to launch the rescue plan for the redemption of the human race. He's a marvelous God. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Pray for these men. Be with them in their work and other responsibilities. Help them to be representative, to be the salt and light that you've called them to be. Commit each one of them to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, man, we'll see you next week. Take care. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome.